Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 279 Finding Authority Outside of Tradition. In this episode, we conclude our conversation with Ted Meissner, host of the Secular Buddhist Podcast, as we discuss the question of where our spiritual authority originates from, whether from ourselves, our peers, our teachers, or from established traditions. This is part two of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. This conversation is kind of opening to some of the questions I wanted to ask about secular Buddhism um, and I know these are things that you've probably considered and you probably explored with your guests. One of the things that David McMahon, who's uh, an academic, he wrote a book recently called The Making of Buddhist Modernism. And he also, I think you had him on your show, right, to interview him about the book. We did. Yeah, he was an excellent guest. And I think he has another book that's either out now or, or coming soon that we'll bring him back on. Okay, awesome. So he had some really interesting points in that book, and I thought some of them related to the whole movement of secular Buddhism and probably relate to Buddhist geeks as well. Um, Hmm. Actually, I'm sure they do. So um, with that in mind, he writes, um, many interpreters of Buddhism have attributed an already modern or demythologized worldview to the Buddha and his early disciples. And I couldn't help but notice this tendency myself um, in, in much of the conversation around secular Buddhism, like when I interviewed Stephen Batchelor and talked about yeah. um, his newest book. Um, and I found it personally a bit strange because uh, in my mind, uh, the, Buddha, the Buddha's time and place was heavily mythological. And there were a lot of things that um, as a human being, he probably couldn't help but uh, somehow take on or at least if not consciously, unconsciously perpetuate. And Mm -hmm. so I wondered to what degree are we projecting our own current understanding back onto this historical figure who really can't argue with us and who we really can't, there's (laughs) really no way to validate or invalidate except through, you know, some historical practices, um, Mm -hmm. whether or not this is true. And it, you know, the, the corollary, and I I see a lot of argument about this in, in the political sphere, which is, you know, everyone trying to, have the framers of the Constitution, their interpretation be the same as, as our interpretation now. Um, right. Even right. though it's clear that the context is so radically different in some ways that, you know, for instance, religious tolerance in the original framing of the Constitution really had more to do with protecting Christians um, than it had to do with other religions outside of Christianity. At least, you know, this is something I, this may be a different, completely different argument, but that's one perspective on, mm-hmm. um, on the original framers and how the discourse has really changed as a result of our, of our culture changing. And that's mm-hmm. only 200 years ago. The Buddha, 2,500 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, just, just throwing out these, these, you know, these questions, these concerns, how do you respond to this issue of, uh, you know, projecting our own understanding backwards and how do we know, you know, that the Buddha actually shared these points of view? Such a rich topic, and thank you so much for bringing up uh, this and David McMahon's book. For folks who are listening, uh, I really can't recommend highly enough The Making of Buddhist Modernism. It's a, a, just a tremendous book. Um, one of the things that uh, Stephen Batchelor again has said in the past when he's been accused of you know, interpreting 
Buddhist concepts with our own lens of contemporary society, he said, well, yes, <laughs> that, that has always been so. Uh, that's what people have always done. Uh, Buddhism has not gone unchanged since the Buddha's time. There are threads of it, like Theravada practices, which are uh, very close to what may have been, and I say that very intentionally, may have been how the practices were done in Siddhartha Gautama's time. And there are others that have gone in a very different direction. What we see in Soto Zen, I, my original uh, tradition, is probably not real close, and there were schisms that led to this evolutionary branch of the Buddhist tree, and that's okay. It doesn't mean that Zen is a bad thing or that Theravada is a bad thing. There are simply different ways of engaging with it that were based on differences of ideas about what our practice meant. So when we talk about things uh, in terms of what the Buddhist context was, understanding that he was also embedded in his culture, and his backdrop was one of a Brahmin ascendancy of the religious tradition of the time. And so as he was questioning, and you'll see this in the Pali Canon and the suttas, Brahmins will come to him with a particular view about something, and he will ask questions about it and, and make the point of, you know, have you seen this for yourself? Well, no. How about your teacher? No. How about the teacher's teacher? No. Well, how about for seven generations back? No. Well, then how do you know? Well, that's a perfectly valid way to question one's assertions today. The, the mechanism is still perfectly valid. What he was pushing back against was you have a particular uh, understanding of the self, of, a, of an Atman, that is an unchanging gem that goes from one life to the next and based on ritual sacrifices in a religious tradition, you make better circumstances for yourself in future lifetimes. And so when we see, for example, references to fire, uh, it's often poking a bit at the sacrifices that are done and the ritualized processes involving fire in the Brahmanical tradition. So in that sense, uh, the Buddha was questioning uh, religious assertions of his day, much as many people do today. And he did have suttas that were along the lines of, you know, uncovering the city that, uh, that has been lost and opening that up. And these are very tangible real world today within the context of this world and, and our lifetimes rather than about um, future lifetimes and ending the wheel of samsara and extinguishing rebirth. That being said, that is also part of the Pali Canon. And there's a great deal of discussion and debate about, so was that added later? Was it part of it all along? Did Buddha actually believe this? Or how did that come about? And that's a lot of what uh, Richard Gombrich and John Peacock and, and others are examining. Yes. So I, again, I'd say read some, some of the work done by Richard Gombrich and our friend John Peacock and others to find out more about that because it is very, it's very interesting stuff. And, uh, and I find it fascinating 
It's just that for me, that's not my main focus. It, it helps inform what I do, but it doesn't really change things. So I'd say with the idea that there's always going to be a lens through which we see things is very true. That's always true. It's true for us. Uh, we're embedded in our own culture and it's very difficult for us to set aside those goggles we may not be able to. And I guess, you know, part of, and this is more of a personal thing, I, while I did, I did study the kind of classical sutta some, and I did kind of get into that for a while, at a certain point I remember just going, okay, I'm, I'm way more interested in the, the living, kind yeah. of living realizations right now and, yeah. you know, people that um, are, are kind of doing this stuff now. So I'd sort of look for people who seem to have a depth of, kind of realization or awakening or whatever that seemed to be mm-hmm. something similar to what I was looking for, you know, like kind of trying to find the people that, that knew what I was, what I was trying to find myself. And right, right. I, I guess as part of that, I, I noticed that, you know, there's one movement going back to the tradition saying, let's find, uh, let's find uh, some connection back to the tradition and let's mm-hmm. sort of uh, find ourselves as part of this ongoing narrative of Buddhism. And then there, there's another movement to be like more radically, and you find it in Buddhism, which is interesting, you know, um, <laughs> if you see the Buddha on this, on the road, kill him, you know, Lin Chi. Yeah. Yeah. And there's this whole more kind of radical thing of, you know, let's not find our authority in some sort of historical figure, but let's find our authority now in this living experience and this living, you know, community. So I I guess that's in some ways the tension I felt. And, um, it seems like one that in the secular Buddhism world, you probably also have to deal with. We do. And it's, it's interesting because that also is not new in in this time. You're saying, you know, it's, it's not, and this is the story of, of his his dying, and then Ananda is particularly upset. And he said, well, of course this is happening. Of course I'm dying. Nothing lasts. And it's if you need to understand the Dhamma, don't look to me. The teaching is there. This is for you to do yourself. And the last words purportedly being practice on with diligence, that, that this is in your hands. You do it yourself. That's not a new thing. So in, in secular practice, as we uh, look at that, informed by our traditions, inspired by those stories, because they are inspiring, and not just in early Buddhism, but in Mahayana tradition, in Zen, and what we have in Tibetan practices, and all of that, and, and in modern science, and what we're finding about how brains function, and how meditation changes the brain physically, and how it operates, all of that informs what we can do to help ourselves and one another. So uh, it, it's okay that we, we do question that and we may come up with a, you know, we're never going to know, but this is an interesting avenue and that enriches what I do in my practice. Mm. You know, this brings to mind one of the main things I've started noticing more and more with Buddhist geeks and with myself and peers and, and folks that listen to Buddhist geeks. Uh, it's, it's, there's this very interesting paradox between on the one hand, really practicing deeply within a, a system, you know, like a mm-hmm. like in this case a Buddhist system, and yeah. like you mentioned, there there are many different <laughs> systems and many different disagreements even within bigger systems. Mm-hmm. So we have a lot of options there, but you know, say we find a system like Soto Zen or Insight Meditation or whatever it might be, and we we go deep with that community or that system, those practices. Um, 
the paradox that I've run into and that I've seen so much of is, okay, there's so much value in doing that. Like it it would be arrogant and it is arrogant to think we can sort of reinvent the wheel without, you know, any uh, connection to what's come before. And why would we want Mm -hmm. to waste our time doing that? Right. Right. Um, Right. Precisely. There's so much value there. So much value. And, And these systems, they really are designed in a certain way to enact certain kinds of transformations and certain you know, uh, understandings and insights, et cetera. And they're really good at doing that. And part of the way they do that is by being very, um, self-contained and self-coherent. And there's, there's a, uh, there's a container and that container is, is, is strong. So Mm -hmm. in a certain way, we don't want to be just completely breaking those containers apart or we lose the, you know, we lose the power of them. Right. But on the other hand, those containers were all designed and developed in, in a, in a period of time which is radically different than the time we're in now in the modern world, the global world that we live in. And Mm -hmm. so the paradox I've noticed is for those people that are, even those people that are going deep in those systems, there are all sorts of questions about how does this relate to, you know, um, to, you know, my business? How does this relate to my relationships? How does this, and the traditions in many ways, (laughs) at least what I've seen, they, they fall short in many ways and being able to answer those questions because they weren't designed to answer those questions. These are new questions, right. uh, new contexts that are emerging, new intersection points that we've never really had to deal with before. So the paradox I'm noticing is like, uh, you know, it's not just about applying what we learn from these systems and practices to life, but also what does life have to tell us about these mm-hmm. practices? Wondering how, how, like, how you've seen that uh, have you seen that tension play out? How do you respond to that? How, do, how does secular Buddhism work with that? Because it seems like you're also working at all these different intersection points. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there there are, and and that ties in again with how we were talking about uh, right speech. That our our practice is sound. It's how it finds um, how it presents itself within our cultural context. So, for example, I'm glad you brought up. Uh, paradoxes. I just had a discussion with uh, Mark Lesser, who's the CEO of the Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute. Uh, and to, he has a, a new book that's come out. And a lot of that is has running through it the theme of paradox, that we do see this um, seeming contrasting views that really help us think creatively in the moment. And I think the the dichotomy of secular Buddhism is one such way of challenging our traditional views and shaking that up and seeing, should we really be as attached to some of the assertions that we have that might not be contributing to us? And as you're saying, one can find tremendous value within a given tradition. And if that aligns well with our own views and how we approach practice, that's great. That's exactly where you should spend your time because that helps energize what you do in your daily life. Um, And that's really what we're doing with secular Buddhist practice is that we're finding resonance with a view that is more this world based. Uh, One of the wonderful discussions that came up at Buddhist Geeks last year in one of the breakout sessions was on rebirth and how that contributes to our understanding. And you and I chatted about this last week that on the one hand, you had folks who were absolutely firm believers in the literal truth of a rebirth from one life to the next. And there were other folks who, who didn't uh, accept that as a dependent understanding of their practice. What they did 
did not rely on that understanding. And there were good questions on both sides about, well, if you don't believe this, then how does that work? And, and that was a wonderful, wonderful experience because we all learned from that and found, again, common ground about what we do today. Um, you brought up a very interesting point about uh, spiritual practice, the, the faith in this uh, what we would call a um, a buffet-style religion <laughs> and how that might not be such a good thing because you have the tendency to take the things that you like or the things that are easiest from each and set aside the things that are harder. That's a normal human thing to do. We We don't eat the bad food, we eat the good food. That's just normal part of experience. Yes. And so I'll, I, you know, I have an upcoming interview with David Webster, uh, who recently put out the book Dispirited, How Contemporary Spirituality Makes Us Stupid, Selfish, and Unhappy. And he, he makes that point that um, we need to be careful when we look at that cafeteria-style spirituality, whether it's Buddhism or Christianity or whatever it is, that we're not just shying away from the hard work that we also need to engage with things that we might not like to do, but which are nonetheless beneficial to ourselves in our, say, our spiritual growth. So it, it is very hard. And I, I guess the one thing I would suggest to people who are, are new to a practice is that trying only one tradition and finding it to be perfect and true and correct without trying any others, without even doing some tentative explorations about what they're about, is like flipping a coin once and saying it will always come up heads. It just doesn't work that way. Okay, cool. And, you know, it's, you know what, you're, what you're bringing up really brings up the question of authority and yeah. where yeah. does spiritual authority arise from? Um, and is it something that is completely on us, which is kind of one of the ways that uh, things seems to be changing um, mm -hmm. with religion. Uh, there's more of a sense, you mentioned this before, more of a sense of imminence as, a, as opposed to transcendence and also more of a sense of uh, the responsibility is on us as opposed to some sort of external um, source. And I'm, I'm curious, how, how does that play out when, you know, we, obviously we can't trust ourselves sometimes. Right. Yeah, I mean, that that's where I think our or scientific and critical thinking worldviews and ideas and practices really come into play um, when we talk about authority. First, we need to understand that uh, even our much-loved and admired religious teachers and, and idols are human beings, and they're not necessarily perfect, and they're going to have failings and stumblings just like the rest of us and to to expect perfection in a teacher is to invite disappointment and i think uh, uh, other traditions are running into that right now as their uh, their religious leaders are being exposed for some of the very serious and very harmful failings that they have uh, have participated in and that their religious institutions have intentionally and with full knowledge contributed to that by either 
intentionally moving them to a different parish, for example, for one tradition, uh, or really covering up uh, situations of abuse. I think that's wrong. I don't think we should tolerate that. I think that needs to be exposed and and changed. We we just can't as a society condone or encourage that by allowing it to go through. Um, we also need to understand that much of the work is our own. But as you said, Vince, we're, we're not always right. We, we need to have uh, a sounding board for our practices. And that's yes. where community comes in, is that we may be wrong. We may be perceiving that because we've had a good practice that I'm a much nicer person now when really those around us are finding that that's not necessarily the case. And that is, that's what the Kalyanamita is, our, our spiritual friends, our friends on the path, those around us who know us really well and from a different perspective than one we could possibly have being on the inside. We also need to reach out to them and get their perspective on how we're doing on this practice. And that's just a validation to control, if you will, for our own confirmation bias about how we're doing. Our own context is not always an accurate run. We may have a really great experience in meditation where we, say, floated out of our body and, and saw all these wonderful things that might be a wonderful experience for us and might positively transform our practice and ourselves and our outlook. We don't have to rely on those as being absolutely true. That, that That's what really occurred. And that's where we check with others and have that sounding board to what is actually going on. Are we really helping ourselves and others? And that's what it's about. And I think that's probably one of the key reasons uh, the Buddha said that the the whole of the practice is the friends that we have on this path, that we do have this uh, as one of the triple gems is the Sangha, is each other. And that's why we're taking outlook of being big tent. Our Sangha extends beyond just Buddhists and on to humanity and on to sentient beings. And that is rooted in the earliest traditions that we have. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network 
And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.